Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is November the 14th, 2019. This is episode 2547 of the Survival Podcast. 2547, as you can hear, my voice is not 100% back, but it is better than it's been. Hopefully we'll get through this show together and uh, got one more tomorrow. As long as we have enough expert counsel content tomorrow, we'll be good. Uh, it'll give me an easy day and a weekend for, few, uh, for full vocal recovery. I have to say, this first week back from um, the workshop, I feel like this week has flown. The fact that it's Thursday, I... I feel like I slept through half this week. I, I damn sure didn't, but I feel that way. I think part of it is it's been it's been bitterly cold, and uh, I mean bitterly cold for here, so low twenties, which for here is really cold, and it's been bitterly cold without the sun shining. The, sh the sun is out today. I feel a little bit better. It's kind of depressing. So between going off my diet, drinking too much, having a week of uh, of like debauchery. Uh, followed by immediately having to purge the pipes, the cold and the dreariness. It's 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 been kind of a blur of a week. Uh, I hope to be back on my game 100% next week. I do feel like what we did so far this week, though, with uh, the show on Kratky Aquaponics was uh, Kratky Hydroponics, Jack. You're talking about hydroponics. I have been so engrossed in aquaponics for the past four years that it is very hard for me to say hydroponics. Anyway, Kratky Hydroponics show on Tuesday seemed like it stirred up a lot in people. And it stirred up something in me. In spite of the fact that I've kind of been moping around this week, my brain has been acting like it's on more caffeine than it is. My mind has been going really, really fast, um, faster than it should be, actually, because I can't keep up with myself. Yes, that is a thing when you're me. Um, with all the things we can do with hydroponics now. And what I decided to do today It's doubled down on the subject. I am going to take another look at Hydro today, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, today's episode is going to be kind of like a, a mini-episode and a three-quarter episode put together. We're going to do a little bit on being a polymath today, and we're going to lead off. And we're going to start out with why I do things the way I do sometimes with shows that where you're like, man, Jack's obsessed. Yes, I am. It's, it's a short-term temporary obsession with a thing until the thing is learned to a, a level where I can do it, I can teach it, I can expand on it, and I can implement it, and I can integrate it with what I already know. At that point, it just becomes another item in the, you know, the quiver, so it's another arrow in the quiver, I guess, where we can pull it out and use it and integrate it when needed. And that's part of being a polymath, and we'll get to that. Well, right off the gate, because Thursday shows, we don't have any real commercials in them. Uh, and I want to start out with a quote today. Uh, this is from a guy named Sean Lucas. Never heard of him before today. But I was looking for quotes on polymaths to fit in with today's episode. And uh, this guy's actually a designer from South Africa. And according to his website, he's currently based in Berlin. So he's like a designer of like architecture and things like that. Is what it's, he's either an, like an architect designer or he's like an interior space designer. I didn't care enough to dig that deep into who he was, but I liked his quote here. 
He said, any man who bears the ability of a polymath shall not be interfered by specialty. He needs discipline to manage his behaviors and nurture his creativity, again, by Sean Lucas. So for some of you, I probably should say, well, what exactly is a polymath? It's a person that becomes highly skilled at many things. Um, it's very much people you think of like, you know, great polymaths from history would be people like Aristotle or Leonardo da Vinci or more recent history in our own American uh, historical background, Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin, uh, through poor Richard's almanac, is famous for saying, a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, and I think that was his interpretation of what a polymath was. And I would say that a true polymath is a jack of all trades and a master of some. And what I mean by that is there's a few things in your life that you are exceptionally good at. And then there's a shitload of things that you are uh, aware of and capable of and have varying degrees of skill at. And what that lets you do is take the things you're really, really good at and use them kind of as a focal point. And then with as many things as you can integrate into that, you can accomplish just about anything you want. And if you've really developed the skill of a polymath, whatever you can accomplish, you can very quickly either figure out how to do it or ascertain that in this particular instance, this component should be outtasked. We call it outsourcing in business, but I prefer the term outtasked. So an example of that is I'm a reasonably good carpenter. Um, if I really screw around with it, I can do miter joints. But when I did my flooring at my place in Arkansas, I did the wood flooring. My wife did the, the tile flooring in the kitchen. Uh, we kind of did that together. We had music playing. And that way we weren't bumping into each other. We weren't in each other's way. We had a great time. We did it over a weekend. And um, you know, drank some adult beverages and had fun with each other and put flooring in. And then when it came to the baseboards that required the miters, I just hired a handyman because getting really good at doing miters wasn't important to me, and there were other things I could be doing. And that ties in with what Sean Lucas is saying here about he needs discipline to manage his behaviors and nurture his creativity. And that discipline is not only the discipline to stick with something, but the discipline of letting go of something and let of go, letting go of something temporarily letting go of something because it's been mastered sufficiently for your needs, or letting go of something because it doesn't warrant your attention. right? And that is part of, of being what I would call maybe more of an effective polymath. So here's some things that I don't think people realize about being a polymath. Number one is if you're a real polymath, you learn from yourself. You go so quickly that the reason you need to either write that, like, so I never took notes, but I journal notes. And what's the difference? Taking notes is listening to somebody else and writing down notes. Journaling notes is writing down the things that come into your mind before you don't remember that you thought of them. And if you're a polymath, you have to do this. I'll find myself sometimes on my morning walks thinking about the show. And I'll start having, like, It's, it's weird. It's almost like five things instantaneously appearing in your head. And I'll stop and pull up my notes act because I, because I know if I don't get them down right now, I'm going to have five more ideas and some of them are going to go away. And I'm going to be sitting here going like, wow, what was I thinking about? And while I'm trying to remember what I was thinking about, I'm thinking about something else. 
So by going through your own notes, you go, oh, yeah, I said that. And there's people sometimes will quote me on Facebook, for instance. And even with my memory, I'll be like, I said that? That sounds like something I'd say, but I don't remember saying that. So one of the ways I learned from myself is when I start having these explosions of ideas about a show, and it's why I'm doing today's show, I will do a couple shows on it, and then I will go listen to myself and remember all the great ideas I had that I already forgot because now I'm moved on to something else. And then you need to accept this. If you're a polymath, you have ADD. And I don't care what society says. Screw society's expectations. Society can very well go F itself in the A hard with a cheese grater when it comes to quashing the gift. I Yes, I said the gift of ADD. People don't actually have ADD as it's described. In other words, I can't focus on anything. No, they can't focus on bullshit they're not interested in. Or they can't focus on bullshit that they've already learned that they see no need to relearn. So this was me in school. In school, if, if I was in school in the mid to late 90s instead of the early 80s, I would have been medicated into compliance. It just wasn't done back then. And the reason I had you know, what they call ADD is you have a subject like, let's say, history, and they give you a textbook of about 400 pages. Well, I can sit down, and since I am interested in history, I can read that book in a few hours. And then I can retain like 80% of the information in that book. So that I already have the ability to get a B on every test that I'll ever take based on that book. So if I had a teacher that didn't teach beyond the book... I'm totally disinterested. And the 20% I couldn't remember, like, so this, this, this test we're going to have is going to cover these three chapters. Well, you know, the study hall before that class where I was going to have that test, I just read those three chapters again and get an A on the test. So I was bored with it. And, and so ADD isn't a problem, it's a gift. It's why you can learn so much so fast. If you practice what I call The temporary obsession method. So this is how the temporary obsession method works. You determine that you're really interested in something like hydroponics. And then you learn as much as you can about it. And as you're learning, you begin to implement it. Actually, do practical application of the thing. And you learn from the success and failure of the practical application. And while you're doing that, you learn from other sources. You expand your ideas. You integrate them into what you already know. And then once you know enough about that thing to be able to use it, you integrate it into your life where it makes sense, and you go do something else. And that whole process in most things should last for about three days to a month. If you can't really learn something in a month, you're not learning fast enough. Did that mean, does that mean you've mastered it? No, it's a jack of all trades and master of some. And you may, in fact, master that obsession by tinkering with it and utilizing it if it has practical applications in your life over years. I feel like I'm really, really good at aquaponics now. But am I a master of it? Probably not. I've learned enough to do what I want to do and to teach it. And let me tell you something else. If you can't sit down off the top of your head and develop a 45-minute, let's say, PowerPoint-based presentation, with only the only thing you look up, or well, yeah, I, since I'm doing this 
and I'm giving a statistic, I'm going to look that up to make sure I'm not over or under. Now, that should be the only research, in air quotes, you have to do during that. If you can't sit down and put together that presentation for a 45-minute presentation with a 15-minute Q&A afterward, you don't know your subject. Assuming you're giving that presentation to people that, you know, this would be a beginner level or maybe like a second level presentation. You should be able to do that. And if you do it, you will learn the material better and better and better. So another way that I've cultivated this, this polymath attitude or polymath aptitude in my life is by doing 11 years of podcasting. And people that ask, well, how do you just put together, you know, a show a day? And back when I was not in a studio, when I was in a car, it was usually five shows a week, four of which would be on a subject that would be put together between three and four o'clock in the morning. And then I'd go out, take care of my backyard, have breakfast, get in my car and drive to work and do that presentation in my car. How do you do that? You just do it. And if you really want to become a polymath, you can. And so then I have to explain, before we get into this, it's supposed to be a hydro show, I'm talking all about polymath. Maybe it's two half episodes here. Um, you have to understand the dedication required to make your mind work this way and understand that you can. Like some of us do have this natural aptitude. But let's compare it to a natural aptitude to play a guitar. I've tried to learn to play a guitar. I can play a few chords and I'm okay, but I'm not good. You know why? I don't really see how putting the effort required for me to learn to play a guitar will benefit me for the rest of my life. I just don't. Like, if I wanted to sit around campfires and pick up hippie chicks, that'd be great. But I've been with the love of my life for over 20, 23 years now, and I don't care to do that. And that's about the only thing I see it doing for me. I like music, but I can't sing. And if I want to hear a guitar, somebody else will play it, or I'll put it on a radio. If I do learn to play it, it'll give me something to do to amuse myself. I'm never bored as it is, and I don't have an aptitude for it. So it would take a lot more work than it would for many other people. Since I have an aptitude to be a polymath, it's very easy for me to be the guy trying to teach me to play the guitar. Look, look how easy it is. I get that. However, if you develop the capacity to be a polymath, it will benefit you in everything that you want to learn for the rest of your life. It doesn't apply to one vertical niche like playing a guitar does. Maybe you can branch out and you can play a guitar. You can play other string instruments. Okay, that's my entire... I can play music. But if you develop the skill of being a polymath, which may require for some of you the dedication that it would take for me to learn to play a guitar, unlike me who would only be able to play a guitar, you can do anything with it. And that's why I think it's worth developing. So let's start talking about hydroponics. We're going to be talking mostly about the Kratky method that I did on Tuesday today, but I will bring in some other variables because there's some other things I want to do. But what, and I didn't even talk about this Tuesday because that show went long, but what like immediately sprung to my mind when I started looking at putting together some hydro systems was, oh my God, this is the greatest way to propagate plants ever from seed. The when I realized how easy it was to actually propagate from seed in a hydro system, whether that be a little tray thing where you pluck out seedlings and drop them into hydro and let them grow out more, or how easy it really was using you know media like rock wool to actually place a seed into 
a full-on Kratky Hydro system. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that, because you didn't listen to Tuesday's show, maybe found a show uh, on an app or looked it up or whatever, and, and you haven't listened yet, and you're like, I'm committed now, I'm going to stay with this one. Uh, it basically just means that we have a hydro system that doesn't use any pumps, air or water pumps at all. It's a static system, and it just grows in still water. But as the water evaporates, the roots are able to get enough air. Because the reason we move water in a system with hydro is there's some efficiency reasons there that we won't talk about today. But the main reason is to keep oxygen to the roots. And if we try to grow a plant in straight water, it doesn't get enough oxygen to its roots and it doesn't do well. So anyway, the ability to actually just drop that seed into a system, put lights on a timer, maybe heat it, and walk away for me, is huge. And let me tell you why. The best place for me to start seeds is indoors. I did it last year in what we will affectionately call a pot tent, a hydroponics grow tent, uh, out in my garage, which required me to heat it, which jacked up my heating bill quite a bit. My house is already warm enough, but there is no place in my home that especially won't make my wife go, what the hell is that, to do this other than upstairs. I do have ADD, as I said, embrace it as a gift, but also understand what it does as far as a limitation. I am not going to go upstairs two or three times a day and water from the bottom a seed tray. But I got plenty of room up there because I got two guest rooms up there that basically get used a couple times a year. I could take a standard plastic shelf, take it up there, put it together. That way it's not even hard to get up the stairs. And they slam together in a couple seconds. Put a couple sets of lighting in it. Plug it into a cheap $10 lighting timer. And my lights are automated. It is done. Other than plumbing water in from the sink, which I am not going to do, because if I don't go up there and something goes wrong and it floods, it will be really a big disaster. I cannot automate the irrigation. But if I take a... Rubbermaid tub, put a bunch of holes in it, put a bunch of one-inch net cup, cups in it, and put all my little seed starts in this spring, put my lights over top of it, and I go up there once every four or five days and look at the level of the water, and if it starts to get a little low, add some nutrient mix to it, that's it. It's done. It's automated. And what it makes me think of what my buddy David said a couple years ago when I had him present at one of the workshops when he presented on automation. What would you do if you didn't have to do it? That is one of those statements that is stuck in my brain. What would I do if I didn't have to do it? And so I would irrigate perfectly my starts in the spring and give them the exact amount of nutrients so they would be healthy, stocky seedlings when I put them out. And it doesn't matter if I'm putting them in the soil. It doesn't matter if I'm putting them in another hydroponic system. It doesn't matter if I'm putting them in an aquaponic system. I would still do that thing. I would perfectly irrigate the exact amount and the exact right amount of nutrient that they needed, and I would give them the exact amount of timing of the best lighting I could so that when I needed to put my plants out, I had stocky, perfect seedlings. And guess what? Cracky Aquaponics does that for me. It does that for me so simple with a simple rack and light system. No need to irrigate frequently. And the other thing I would do, and this has been something pretty easy to do, wherever I put my seedlings, I would warm the tray. 
The easiest thing to do when you put out seedlings and get them to germinate really fast and do well is put a nice little heat mat designed for the purpose under your tray of soil. It'll hold a perfect temperature. And it doesn't matter that the leaf part of your plant is cool. You know, say you're like me. You don't really heat your house very, very heavily. You prefer your house nice and cool, as long as it's not cold. But that means that your soil in a house that's, let's say, 68 degrees, and it has the cooling effect, effect of evaporation, your soil temperature could be like 60 degrees. Let me tell you something about wet 60-degree soil and seeds. They don't like each other. So with Kratky, what you can do is maybe heat the space until your seeds germinate. would probably be a good idea. But keeping the roots warm, you take a standard aquarium heater that you can buy for about 10 bucks, and you put it inside a three-gallon Rubbermaid tote that you put a bunch of holes in to start your seeds, and you're going to hold that water rate at about 76 to 78 degrees. You don't even need the fancy ones with a little thermostat on them. You need a heater that's designed, like a nano heater, designed for like three to ten gallon aquariums, somewhere in there. And you have a lid. You have a lid on it. And that means that water is going to be warmer than the surrounding air temperature. So what is it going to want to do? It's going to want to evaporate. So where is it going to go? It's going to hit the lid. When it hits the lid, what's going to happen? It's going to condensate, and it's going to drop back down. And you're going to keep a perfect humidity zone in your air gap because of that. Do I know this? I haven't done it, so I cannot know it. But I am fairly certain that is exactly what will happen. And now I have a perfectly heated root zone for my plants that is also automated. Now, I cannot see, and I have been doing aquariums and using aquarium heaters since 1986. I set up my first aquarium. I cannot see a world in which an aquarium heater underwater gets hot enough to melt a Rubbermaid tub. However, being a man of caution, especially when caution is simple and costs no money, I will take something like a brick or something and put it inside there and set my heater on top of that so that the glass of the heater never makes contact with the Rubbermaid tub. And I will worry, worry not at all. I will plug that heater into a power strip so if something goes haywire, the power strip will kick. Uh, and, and kill the peat, especially since I won't be looking at it a lot. And I'll probably fart around with it and see where it really gets temperature-wise and all, but that's what I will use. And I have plenty of them here because I've basically stopped heating my aquariums. Remember what I said on Tuesday, if you can not do something, don't do it, <laughs> right? So if you can do something without doing it, do that. That's automation. And if you can eliminate something, that means don't do it if you don't have to, then do that. So... I have a bunch of these little heaters around, so I'll just throw one in, one. And I, what I'm going to do, because I believe in the scientific method, is I'll set up two exactly the same. I'll heat one and not the other and see what happens. So I think that's going to be really interesting. I, I think you can do a very high density with this. You know, I could see one little three-gallon Rubbermaid t tub, and i got to actually sanity check this. Um, but I could see it, you know, doing 25 easy starts with one-inch neck cups. Easy. No irrigation, perfect temperature, perfect humidity, no moving parts. A light and a heater, and maybe we don't need the heater. Because here's what I want to tell you. I think the heater's a great idea. If I put two of them side by side and the one without the heater works just as good or close enough, no heater. If I can eliminate a variable, I eliminate a variable. My gut is it will be beneficial. 
especially this time of year and going into late spring. Um, again, I want to kind of point out that, that a, a starting system like this will be great no matter what you plan to do with the plants. If you have a larger hydro system you're going to be dropping them into, it's great. If you're a dirt gardener, now you have a reason to do hydro. Because I can't see an easier way. And I, I guarantee you, I will have some problems with dampening off with mold, etc. on the media until I ferret out the best way. But once I ferret out the best way, and the good news is there's tons of people doing similar things already, so I have a great starting point. Once I ferret out the best media, the best light, the best distance on the light, the best everything, then you have the most carefree, least fiddly way to start plants that I can come up with in my head anyway. And at that point, why wouldn't you set one of these up? Because you're talking about something that can sit in a corner and make you hundreds of plants And maybe once every three weeks, you add some grow solution to your, your tubs. And maybe once every month and a half, you dump your tubs into, you know, your composting or your, you know, dump it into your garden beds or whatever, mix up a new solution and start over and do your next batch. What I, I, I have a hard time preventing myself from doing this now. Um, and I am considering something here with my lighting for an indoor system. As I mentioned, I am an aquarium enthusiast. And I'm sitting here looking at um, a couple Finex Stingrays on a planted tank, a 40-gallon breeder, 36-inch Finex Stingrays. These lights sell for about 50 bucks a piece, and they are designed for continuous long-term use. We're not repurposing something that's really a shop light, and we're not buying an uberly expensive LED plant light. Again, this, is, this system is for starts. And I'm looking at this sitting about... 20 inches above plants. And between those plants and where the light is actually striking the plants is about 20 inches of water. So I'm having to drive light through 20 inches of water column with this Phoenix Stingray light. And I'm not saying to use that light. I have some like really inexpensive night crews that actually might be a more high-intensity light and better for this. You know what I'm going to do. I'm going to test them side by side throughout this part of the year. And I'll get to what I'm doing with this part of the year versus early spring uh, in a moment. But I figured that if I can drive enough light through two feet of water, roughly, to grow dwarf phallicinaria planted in gravel at the bottom of a tank, that starting a pepper plant or a tomato plant should be a cakewalk for this light. Do I know that? No. Am I open to being wrong about this? Yep. I may come back and say, don't do this. Use the Kingbow lights or whatever. But what I know about starting plants is you want to lower that light really, really low. You want that, light to, that, that, that plant to do almost no work at all for that light. You want angry, mean, stocky seedlings, not long, leggy ones. You don't want your seedlings to grow really tall really fast. You want them to grow bushy. That's the best seedlings. Those are the ones that when you put them in a larger system, they just go. And they develop thick stalks, and when they grow vertically, they, they remain rigid and upright. So I know that I can easily take that light and put it just a few inches over the, that, put it on a timer, and rock on. And so that's where I'm probably going to start, but I'm going to probably set up some king bows. So the king bows, I know work for this. But I'm thinking long-term here, 
that a lot of you guys are going to want to do indoor systems that your wife doesn't go, that's ugly, or your husband doesn't go, that's ugly. And that pinky, purpley light from those type of grow lights, not real attractive in your living room. So I'll save it, but I think, you know, a couple Nycrews or a couple, you know, the Nycrews are cheap, uh, or a couple Stingrays or something like that. Currents can be uh, a little bit higher end light. One way or another, you can get up a, a light that's very attractive and very, see, that's the other thing about aquarium lights. They're designed to go on top of a tank and you want to see the light, not the light fixture. So you want to see what the light does versus the light itself. So they're very low profile, thin lights that kind of just disappear. So we'll, we'll bring those back in a minute. I do want to talk about why I may go beyond crap key. So here I am. I discover this simplistic method of aquaponics. Make a hole, fill up a container, stick a plant in it, and do nothing. This is what sells me on it. Immediately I start thinking, well, you know, in my greenhouse, I already have power, so I could get a pump, and then I could get an air pump. And stop, Jack, stop. Right? Because now you're adding complexity before you've even implemented the simple. And I'm going to implement the simple, but there is a couple things that make me want to go beyond this. Number one is I know from doing aquaponics that if you pump air into an individual grow bed container of deep water aquaponics, that the root growth differential is ex extensive. And part of being a polymath is take what you already know and apply it to what you're learning, right? Like, there, that should be, by the fourth grade, if we're going to have organized government schools, public schools, we should have a class that is dedicated to that alone. Take that what you know and apply it to what you're learning. And maybe that's like a four-week course built into the, not every class in school, you moron idiots on the state, has to have an individual grade across a year. Like that's part of why you guys can't teach kids shit anymore. Um, but we should maybe have like a, maybe there's like a floating, like we should going to do classes with periods and whatever. You know, like there's a floater thing where you learn a different thing throughout the year in that period that doesn't have a grade. Of course, how would we validate children and teach them to conform with, with, with that type of approach? But learning while you're learning using that which you already know like that is a skill and because of that i do know that you get better root response when you pump air into the individual bed so having some inexpensive quiet air pumps sitting around you know throwing an air stone or two into those plant starting beds it's probably something i'm going to do but i'm definitely going to do one sitting next to it without it so if nothing else i can show the difference And I can understand the difference. And I can also understand, like, so? If I'm going to have a system that can start 200 plants, and I'm going to have to run three air pumps to make that work, because we'll talk about some concerns I have with air pumps here in a minute, especially like consumer-grade air pumps that most people use, is it necessary? Is it worth the additional electrical draw? Do I need to be doing this? Or should I just not do this? But... That's one reason I'm considering doing some moving parts. The next thing is I've really kind of made a decision in my head now. I've been up in the air about my greenhouse. I'm definitely going to rip all the IBCs out of it and take that aquaponic system out of there. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to repurpose it somewhere else on the property. I don't know if I'm going to sell it. I might donate it to somebody. I might give it away in a prize, except it's big and bulky and heavy. So someone would have to come get it if I did that. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. But one thing 
my buddy David who helped me build it and I are really proud of is that that one system didn't propagate just shitloads of plants and fish. It propagated probably dozens of aquaponic systems. So if I can then send it somewhere else to keep doing that, that would be great too. So I then I was like, well, I have a 12 by 12 greenhouse. It's not really huge. And if I don't stick another tank in there and make another aquaponic system, like in the cold weather, it's one less thing for me to worry about. And I have more floor space and I can do more things. So maybe instead of putting like this idea I had for an aquaponic system in there that was more space efficient, just don't. Then I discovered Kratky. And I was like, well, Kratky's just a bucket. It's not married to the greenhouse. So during the winter, there can be Kratky hydro in there. And during the summer and spring or fall, those buckets, if they have a plant that's more long-term, could just go somewhere else. And I have infinite flexibility. You can move a three- or five-gallon bucket. You can move a three-gallon Rubbermaid tub. I mean, just like, so there was so much flexibility in that. But when I started thinking about it, I thought, you know what? The one thing I really wanted to do in there was grow towers, specifically grow towers with strawberries. And I was like, well, then I could have a relatively small sump, throw a relatively small pump in there, and do you know a pump-based hydro system, closed sump, so it's not going to get algae or anything like that in it, and I already have power there. So I might do that with the greenhouse. And the other thing I thought about that is it is so flexible to do that that I'm not married to it like right now it is going to be an ordeal to pull two 330 gallon IBCs and a solid separator out of that greenhouse if I do this and decide I want to do something else it's draining a small tank and moving some towers which will be able to tie in with the small aquaponic system that's going in the aviary so I might do that that's another reason I'm thinking about doing something else and, and like I said I already have power out there anyway So that might not even be the greenhouse. Maybe I'll do strawberry towers in the aviary. You know, there's a lot of ways I can do this now, and it's giving me greater flexibility. So I also wanted to talk to you about some things I've already learned since Tuesday. And I'm going to give credit to a couple people in the audience who have either emailed me or commented on the blog. I learned most of this not from watching YouTube videos, but from you guys. So thank you. And I want your feedback on this episode, too. Um, number one, if you're going to use solids, which is what I recommended on Tuesday, instead of buying a liquid concentrate, because when I did the numbers and the economics, it's just cheaper that way. And the people that I saw who seem to have the best results, and the people that I saw on YouTube that seem to have the best results, that do side-by-side -side comparisons, seem to be using solids and making the economic case and the results case for it. But what one of the guys said, who just has an incredible comment on Tuesday's show, and I'll have a link in today's show notes to that exact comment where it'll jump down to his comments. You can see it's a very, very long comment. Um, he said, well, if you're going to use solids, then he, he gave a reference to a YouTube video of how to do it. He said, make a concentrate. And that immediately made sense to me. So instead of making a gallon of, let's call it grow fluid, I don't know what the, you know, it, liquid fertilizer for hydroponics that's used at full strength, make a concentrate designed to be diluted to the gallon. 
So maybe, you know, you use a, a, a tablespoon of the Allen. I, I haven't even looked at it yet. So that seems like it'd be a really dense solution. It would have a lot of sediment in it to me. But maybe it's something I use a cup to the gallon, right? So then mix up a gallon at a time of a concentrate and dilute that down one, so that now I can just go, well, I'm at, I just added three gallons to my, to my um, yeah, I don't know, a big container, like something that's growing tomatoes, like a... Rubbermaid garbage can. I added three gallons to it, so I had three cups of concentrate. And I don't have to worry about mixing up three gallons at a time. That made a lot of sense to me. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about some idea I had with that as well. Um, the next is people use pure hemp fiber and cocoa fiber, and it does work. And there are tons of options for media, including media for transplants and media for seeds starting directly in a system. And that I have no idea yet. Like, I realize, like, I'm going to try rock. Well, I'm going to do, like I said on Tuesday, do the thing that you know works. Form a baseline. And then when you do something and it works, but it doesn't work as good as the thing that we know works, you know you either need to tweak it or abandon it. So, like I said, with beekeepers, we always tell new beekeepers, keep at least two, probably three hives. Because you're going to have, like, if you do three hives, you're going to have, like, a hive that, like, has a, a grade A for performance. You have, like, a B plus, and you're going to have, like, a C minus. You're going to have some problems as a new beekeeper. But you don't know what an a, an a looks like. You don't know what a B looks like. You don't know what a C looks like. By having three hives and comparing them, you're like, something's wrong here. So you know, reach out to that beekeeping mentor and say, hey. This hive, it's just they're not they're not drawing out enough comb because like how do you know that? Well, because the other two hives are doing more. Or I think maybe there's something in this hive that doesn't belong there, some sort of infestation. Well, how do you know that? The way they're acting, you have a comparison. So I'm all for that, but I'm like, let's then then you can try a lot of different things. Because what I'm looking for ease and economics. Because what I want to give you guys is is a solution, which I feel like I did for four years with with, with aquaponics, and rest assured, it's not going anywhere. The reason that one system's coming out is I've got three others that aren't going anywhere. Um, but I've tried to find, like, off-the-shelf, easiest way, without having to go out and retrofit a bunch of crap because you're doing, like, junkyard aquaponics. Like, give you the skill set. If that's what you want to do, you can. But if you don't, you know that a 50-gallon Rubbermaid structural foam stock tank makes a great ebb and flow bed. You just know that. And you know that you can dump about 14 bags of lava rock in there if you can't get it in bulk, it'll fill it almost to the top. And you know that then you can throw some sort of cap like expanded shell or clay marbles on top, leak on top. Like you know that. You know that a three-quarter inch banjo bulkhead goes in there. And like that's how I formulated that. So that's what I'm trying to do this here. So I want to come up with the substrate that's the most economical and simplest to use. I think like the pool, the pool noodle hack I gave you guys Tuesday, I'm going to be using the shit out of that. But it's not that great, at least I don't think so yet, if you want to do a direct seed start in the system. So I'm going to play with that. Um, next thing I learned, and this is really cool, there are large integrated net pot lids for five-gallon buckets. And what I mean by that is if you're growing something that's a really big plant, you might want a little more stability and structure in that lid. So they make lids that are heavier duty than the standard cheap lids you can get like at Walmart or Home Depot for your five-gallon bucket. 
Um, they have an integrated net pot, and there's different sizes, but there's six and eight are probably the most two popular ones. And it's all integrated to a single piece. So instead of drop, you know, cutting a hole and dropping a net pot, if you think about dropping like an eight-inch net pot into a hole cut in thin plastic, there's not a lot of stability there. I guess you could silicone it down or something, but you know, being able to just buy a lid and snap it on, and it's already got a net pot in it for those bigger applications... Seems really, really cool. I have links to those in the show notes today. When you look up the 8-inch ones, it's for, I think, 25. Let me check the notes real quick. Yes, yeah, for 25 of them. So when you see the price at like 60 bucks, don't freak out. They're pretty inexpensive per unit. Um, but that's definitely something that I was really kind of interested to learn, that something like that exists. Uh, the next was, if you have a, a seed starting system, Come up with some sort of clear dome, whether it's in a system or in a prick-out or pull-out system that goes in a larger grow-out. One way or another, put a clear dome over it because you keep your humidity right, you keep your temperature higher, and that was one of those, well, duh, I knew that because whenever I start seeds in a system like that, an indoor system or what have you, I always dome it until the seeds germinate. But in my head, I was not seeing this starting system with a dome of some sort on it. So there's a lot of options for that, but it should be pretty easy to take some of the off-the-shelf plastic cheapo stuff and just build your system for one of those to fit on it. It doesn't need to be very tall. In fact, the less tall, the better. And my thought was, well, in the seed starting system, if you have some sort of a dome over it and you're heating the water, You'd have a great humidity and great temperature control for the seeds themselves above the water line. So we'll see how that works out. I have a little bit of concern with mold doing that. I may have to fine-tune that, but definitely put a dome over your starts. Duh. Um, next, and I just I don't have a recommendation for this. I'm looking for a um, recommendation for you guys. One of the guys did a great, very long comment. That, by the way, dude, if you hadn't seen yet, It looked like maybe your comment was not allowed on the blog. It went in a spam filter because you used like 10 links in your comment. And instead of just holding it for review, it actually threw it into the Akismet spam filter. And I had to dig through like two pages because the blog gets that much spam. It got buried down three pages, four pages deep. And I had to resurrect it. Um, but he said he used an EC meter, which is an electrical current meter. And what this does is say, well, how much current... How conductive is your fluid? And it gives it a number. And then when you add your nutrient, it becomes more conductive. And you can find a recommendation for how conductive it should be based on the nutrient you're using. It's, it sounds complicated. It's actually probably pretty simple. But I have no idea where my nutrient level needs to be. And I, I, just, I just actually read that comment this morning. But that's something that I learned to look into. So that's on the needs research level. Um, but it made real, a lot of sense. You measure your water as it stands. And then you know how much you should be adding. You add that to where you're at, and that's your target. So really, really simple to do in practicality. Next was, um, and Brian Norton, who runs Food Forest Farms, it does a CBD-infused CBD coffee. We have the MSB. I've had him on the show to talk about CBD before. Really, really smart guy and has a background in hydroponics for growing the sacred herb, legally, I might add, uh, in Washington State, who was kind of a pioneer in allowing medical marijuana, et cetera. 
And as I said, Tuesday, we owe so much what we know about hydro to those guys. Like both the guys that did it legally and legal grow operations and the guys that grew it in their closets for their buddies. They grew bud for their buddies. Bud, bud for buddies. I like that. Um, anyway, um, they developed so much of this. And what he said is, well, the easiest thing to do with your hydro is use rainwater. Because you don't have the additives of city water. I don't have that because of a, a well, but you have less total dissolved solids. It's easier to get your pH where you want it. And I'm like, well, I do have 3,000 gallons of rain catchment sitting out there. And a tank with a hose bib on the bottom I can just get my water from. So that was another duh moment. Duh, why didn't I think of this instead of duh, I already knew that this time. Uh, next was, if you're going to use inexpensive buckets, like from Lowe's and Home Depot that are orange or blue, or white ones from Walmart, they let a lot of light through. And light is not your friend. When it comes to hydro, especially still hydro like Kratky. So paint those buckets like with black paint to block the light and reduce your algae. And then the other thing I saw somebody suggest was, well, that's fine. But then spray paint your lid white so it conducts less heat. So it's like, well, maybe the thing to do is spray paint your bucket a dark color. And then since you can get spray paint super cheap... Then spray paint it back white so it absorbs less heat. So that's kind of where I've been since Tuesday. And it's given me some additional ideas because, like, all of those came from somebody else. So one of my ideas now is I talked about um, all the different media that's available. And what it made me think of is soil blocking tools. So if you guys don't know, there's these tools that when you're, like, starting your own plants, instead of using, like, a six-pack or nine-pack or uh, 78 or 144, 72 or 144 cell, you know, plastic insert, you can basically just take a soil mix and then you fill up these blocks, and it can be, like, a big block and you make one or some of them make a dozen at a time. You fill them up, you cap them off, and then you use a thing and you press And it compresses the little soil cube. And then you set those in a tray. And they, the, the presses themselves usually leave a dimple. So you drop a seed in every dimple. And you water them. And then you're growing in a cube. And then a cube air prunes. Meaning as your roots start to come out of it, they just kind of don't. They get to an airspace and they just kind of stop. And that way you have zero transplant shock. You don't have any roots wrapped up inside that container. Well, it should be the case then that we can take some form of organic matter and use a similar or implemented device to take and make a cube that stands in for a rock wool cube or a cocoa fiber cube or maybe even use loose cocoa fibers mixed with some soil. Because a lot of people don't want to use any soil in their media in a hydro system Because, well, if that soil gets sucked into a pump, it can start clogging emitters and stuff like that in a system that moves water. Well, one of the advantages of Kratky is since you don't have pumps moving water, that, you know, you don't want to dump a half a gallon of dirt into your uh, system. That's probably not good. But if, if you put a plant that's got some soil on the roots into a net pot and a few bits of that soil come through that net pot and into your water, there's nothing to clog. 
It's just not a big I mean, There's no reason to even really care that it happened. It's not a big deal. Uh, now, I'll point out with an air-driven system that's simply putting aeration into it, I would, I would say the same thing. Like, it doesn't really matter. And I, I think some of the concern with clogged um, pumps is way overblown. And I say that again, somebody's been doing aquaponics in a huge way for, for four years. Um, now, I always use in my aquaponics systems, I use a dirty water pump. I have seen some things clog, you know, piping, like an emitter or something like that. But that in that case, the only time it ever actually was a deal uh, that mattered was a fish somehow managed to get into the solid separator And it was a chunk of a fish that the, the pump ate. So I've seen, um, you know, maybe some of the downspouts and all that you're controlling flow into an ebb and flow bed actually slow down to the point where they needed to be opened up and closed back. But I think that had to do more with fish solids than a little bit of dirt. So I think that might be a little overblown, but it's a legitimate concern. And if you're doing something like misting systems and stuff like that, you bet, yeah, that can clog. But the cracky, it doesn't matter. So, um That was just something that I thought would be uh, good to kind of point out there, that if you do have any sort of a soil drop in a cracky system, you don't really care. Uh, next up, I saw this video, and it gave me an idea of making your own net cups, specifically fairly large net cups for larger plants, but I guess any size solo cup could be done. this could be done with. So a guy got this idea that, hey, I could just drop, you know, when you go to, like, Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever, and you buy plants, and they come in a cup from a company like Bonnie's. So basically all he did was take the Bonnie's plant out of the cup, take a soldering iron, put a bunch of holes in the bottom of it, and then take the soldering iron and make slits on the side of the, the cup, throw the plant back in it, and drop it into a five-gallon bucket. I thought, well, that was cool. Those cups are probably not any better than a solo cup, like a red solo cup that you got when you were a kid at a booze party, and if you didn't, I pity your childhood, you should have. Um, and, you know, a soldering iron goes right through those, because I've made basically starting planters out of those. And you can take a drill, if that's all you have, but a soldering iron's really great for it. And what you do is you take like five or six of them, you stack them together, you turn them upside down, and you just burn through all of them in one shot. So you put four or five holes in the bottom, and now you've got perfect cups to start plants in. And they're way cheaper than anything you can buy that's purpose-built for it. They also, if you um, go to like Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever, where they sell the Bonnies, the plastic, the black plastic trays, there'll be like ten of them in there. The standard size ones, the most popular size ones, a red Solo cup fits in there like a glove. They're basically the same size. So that has my head going with, if you had a seed-starting hydro system that that tray kind of sat into, you'd have 10 of them right there, and you'd have a large plant starting system. When I say large, I don't mean lots of numbers. I mean big plants. And one way or another, you could make net pots of that size, which I'm going to guess is about three inches. You might need a slightly different size hole saw. I haven't measured it yet or whatever. But you could make your own net pots out of solo cups. And while solo cups do get brittle and crack, two solo cups are less than one net cup. So you could double them 
into a system. And that was just an idea. I don't know that I'll do that, but I thought it was something I should let you guys know to think about. And I would, would will say this. A soldering iron is a really great tool to have. It does so much more than just soldering. The fact that you can melt holes in plastic with it. There's all kinds of shit you can do with that on your homestead. And in my um, my resources today, what I did is I took the resources from Tuesday, I cut and pasted them in, and I added to them. And I have, if you're going to buy a soldering iron, what I think you should buy. And instead of like a $10, $12 cheapo, it's still not expensive. It's like a $30 soldering iron by uh, Weller, who I think makes the best soldering irons. It's kind of their entry-level one. It's 30 bucks. It's got a lot of control to it to how much heat you have. It's I think it's 40 watts, and their next step up is an 80-watt. costs a little bit more. Uh, I recommend minimum. You get the 40-watt one. It's got a place for the iron to sit when you're not using it to keep it from burning other things. Uh, it's really a bench-level one, and I think it's worth the extra few bucks. Like instead of 15 bucks for garbage, it's 30 bucks for good. Um, and you will find that a soldering iron is one of those things, if you don't own one, you'll be like, I really don't need one. And once you have one, you just find all types of uses for it. And kind of to make that more of the case, for 13 bucks, Weller has a little, little kit of like five different tips that are different shapes. And with that kit and a good Weller iron, you can find all kinds of crap to do around your little homestead. And most of it, doesn't even have anything to do with soldering, but if you do need to solder, you have a really good soldering iron. So that's one of those things like I wouldn't go out and get one tomorrow because Jack Spirico said to, but that's the thing to put on your radar to consider adding to your stuff that you keep at your homestead. And that would be the one that I would recommend and the one that I'm linked to. If you want to buy a cheapo, go ahead. But, you know, if it was, you can buy a cheapo one that'll do things like this for 12 to 15 bucks, which you can, and something the quality of the one I recommend is like 100 bucks. And you're not going to do any soldering at all. And you might only use it for one or two things. I'd say buy the cheapo. But when the really good one is $30 versus $14, get the really good one. The lifetime investment is worth it. Um, so that was just another thing I wanted to add in there for you today. Next, I wanted to talk about the fact that this seed starting system can go from indoor system to outdoor system really easy. So let's say you build it out of your standard, I was going to say snap together, but they don't even snap, like push together plastic racks that are cheap. You can get them anywhere. You, you, you build it out of that, and you have your lights. So spring comes. It's not cold inside outside anymore. You still want to start plants for your hydro system, your aquaponic system, mid-season planting in the dirt, whatever it is. And you don't really need the, the rack outdoors. You have a greenhouse or something, you have shelving in it already. Okay. So take your three, four, six, whatever number of little Rubbermaid tubs for seed starting you have, take it out to your outdoor system. If you don't want that shelf wherever it is taking up space until next season, Take it apart. It folds flat. I mean, they're designed to ship, right? So basically, the little legs sit in the little legs and poles sit inside. It might even go inside a larger Rubbermaid tub. All your lights go in there. Your timers go in there, and a great big Sharpie writes "Seed Starting Kit for Winter." Put it away. Put it away. If you once you're through that time of the year, your methods of starting seeds outside, etc., are different. 
Clean all your tubs out with some bleach solution. Get a little bit bigger of a Rubbermaid tub. Stack your four starting tubs, six starting tubs, however many you do. All your cups, all your shit for starting seeds next year in that big, you know, maybe like an 18-gallon Rubbermaid. Put it in there. Seed starting set. You're shelving. Everything can go in one Rubbermaid tub and be put away in the garage or the outbuilding or whatever until next winter. Incredibly portable seed starting system. And I think if the fish lighting works the way that I think it will, the way that's all going to pack is going to be great. And even if you have to use like the King Bows or some other more appropriate plant light that has that, you know, pink, purpley, mauve looking lighting, those things are flat too. The 45 watt King Bows will go right into something like that. So now you have a really portable, easy to put away seed starting setup. You could even have, you know, and one of the reasons I like the solid fertilizers is they basically have an infinite shelf life. They're never going to go bad. So if you have some pre-mixed solid stuff, you could have a bottle where you've already pre-mixed it, you shake it up to make sure you've got an even mixture, and you could have that in there, and everything's ready to go next year. And it's, you know, it's, it's half an hour to set up and 15 minutes to put away. And I find the easier things are to do that you should do, the more likely you are to do the things that you should do. So that was another one I wanted to bring up. Next is, and this is just a thought, additional idea, is I was thinking about doing this, and I have all this space for growing already, to the point where like we just put in like a massive amount of garden space around my pond, and I'm like, most of this is going to be herbs and ornamentals. Like the back row, I'll probably do some tomatoes, maybe some eggplant, because I discovered that I really love eggplant this year, and that I can grow the shit out of Japanese-style eggplants. Uh, they're also low carb. That's nice. So, like, there are some things that I want to add to what we're growing, but like, I don't need any more space to grow tomatoes. Except that by like mid July, I'm cutting the last of my tomatoes off in big clumps while they're still green and letting them ripen, and I'm just cutting out my tomato plants because blight. And it becomes the case that I can keep the plants alive. I can get some more production off it, but it's just it's so little for the effort. It's not worth it anymore. And fungal blight in tomatoes comes in through soil and roots. I'm not sure, but it may be the case. This is our trump card to fight blight on tomatoes in Texas. North Texas got really invaded with blight heavily about 10, 11 years ago. I mean, there were news stories where farmers who had grown tomatoes here for years were just pulling out and burning crops. Saying like this, and we got to go to a different crop for a few years. And a few years turned into a lot of years, and it just never went away. We just don't get the cold enough winters to really kill off the, the blight in our soil. So you have like gardeners that are every year are doing tomatoes in containers, and that works for a while, and it still gets you. And my thought is in a closed root system like a crack key tub, we should start stave off the blight for a long time. And at the end of the season, if the blight finally gets to you, You just sanitize everything, put it away, and do it again next year and start with a clean slate every year. And unlike a soil-based system for tomatoes, the soil's expensive. Soil's expensive. Especially get, like soils for containers, even if you're mixing your own up with compost and you know uh, sharp sand or whatever, it's still a pretty big expense in large containers. So you have that recurring expense. It's probably more than the value of the tomatoes. Now you take that soil... And use it for things that don't get tomato blight, you know, in other containers and in the garden beds. It's not gone. But, you know, you can mix up enough fluid for a 35-gallon Rubbermaid garbage can for like a dollar. 
And like I said, with a paddle, a paddle uh, mixer for a cordless drill, <laughs> done. I think one of the reasons people have problems with solids is they're sitting there with like a, a, a boat oar or something. Screw that, man. Better living through chemistry and better living through technology are two of my credos. And what you can do to a five-gallon bucket full of water with one of those things is pretty impressive. Like I said, I started using them for fuel that you actually spill in your mouth when you're making up your mash. Man, cheap. And I don't ever see the day that a mortar mixer for a hand drill doesn't work anymore. I don't see it ever breaking or falling apart. or what. And they're like seven bucks. So I, uh, I want to re mention that. And then I want to talk to some of you guys. When I started talking about aquaponics a lot, I had a lot of you guys going, man, I would love to have an indoor system to grow my food. And even if it didn't grow a ton of food, just to be able to have fresh you know, salad greens throughout the, the winter months, that would be great. But my wife's like, that's ugly. And then when it came to doing aquaponics, I was like, well, you know, you can get like a double stack aquarium stand and you put a fish aquarium on the bottom of it and you put some beds on the top, maybe deep water, and you just run one little pump through there, throw some goldfish in it. And yeah, it looks okay, but then people are worried about the smell. Plus, now you have an animal to take care of and what have you. So I, I started thinking this week after I did the Cracky Show on Tuesday, how can I make this really pretty and really simple and pretty cheap? And my thought is the way you make a pretty cheap and pretty, like pretty cheap and pretty system that your significant other will not get angry at is you use something like an ugly Rubbermaid tub or whatever, because it's just perfect for it, right? And as many as you need to grow as many plants as you want. And then you either find a pre-built planter that they fit into, or you build yourself a really simple wooden planter. You know, go down to Home Depot, and I think like they sell cedar, six-foot, rough-sawn fence pickets for under two bucks a piece. So you build yourself a little planter box that's the perfect size to drop in your one or two or three Rubbermaid tubs, right? They, they, they just go right to the top of, everything's just perfectly there, and now you have wood. The beautiful thing about wood and what makes it easy to build with is that you can easily nail and screw things to it. So build yourself a little overhead top, it almost looks like a carrier, and just attach your fish light to it. And you can set it on a shelf or in a corner somewhere and plug it in. Put it on a timer. Get yourself a timer. I'll add. I didn't realize I didn't have it. My favorite timer, even I can work it because I hate timers. Timers are always like, why is this complicated? The one I use, it just, you have everything you, there's little push down tabs. Each one's a 15 minute increment. If you want your light to be on from 10 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock at night for 14 hours, you just push down all those tabs. And then you just turn the dial. If it's 2 o'clock, you turn it to the 2 during the day. And you plug it in, and your light comes on, and your light goes off. And if you're off by 15 minutes, it doesn't matter. The plant doesn't know that. It just knows that it gets 12 hours of light and 12 hours of not light, and it's happy. And, you know, for some, you could use fence scrap wood for this and $10 worth of Rubbermaid containers. You now have a system that can grow. And if you had three, you know, side by side, You have a pretty long system, or maybe you make some different ones and they sit in different spots. Because, like, I think a Nycru, and I'll find the, the, I don't have that light in the show notes either. I'm looking at the little Nycru's on top of my 10 gallon aquarium. I think that would be perfect for one three and a half gallon Rubbermaid. 
Those are like 13 bucks a piece. So even if you had three of them, you'd have like 33 bucks in the lights. I could be wrong on that price. Don't skin me if I'm wrong when I look them up. But they're in an inexpensive, very high-intensity light. I mean, I look at these Nikrus that I'm looking at right now and go, that light, I don't care if they're 20 bucks. That light is way better than they charge for it. If you can have a longer one, then you use a longer light. It'll be more effective to even use a higher-end light, like a Phoenix Stingray, if you can, can get away with a longer box. And you have, like, this week's in this container, next week's in the next container, and the following week's in the third. And when you're done harvesting this one, it's either cut and come again with greens, or you replant it. You know, maybe you have one set aside that's not as pretty to do your starts in or something. And you just have a constant flow. And you could start that right now. And since it doesn't have that ugly pink light, and since it's in a nice little wooden box, I mean, you're talking about a box you can build in your garage this weekend. If you have a Brad nailer, I mean, it will take you longer to cut the wood than put the box together. It doesn't have to be perfectly squared up. And your easy way to build boxes like that is take, like, a piece of, of, of lumber that's a little bit thicker, uh, like one by two or something like that, or just take a two by four. That'll be awful heavy, so take a table saw and rip it in half so that it's a smaller piece and make your corners out of that and attach your corners to those. Really, really simple. Nice little bottom. If you want to kind of have an opening, but you want the opening to be pretty, just take your opening and take something like weed blocker and put it on the inside, and that way you'll have the opening, but it won't show the ugly, and air quotes, ugly Rubbermaid that's on the inside. And you should be able to take something like that and stain it or paint it. It looked like something you got at a craft fair. You should be able to do that in half a day. And then your significant other is like, oh, that's pretty. I built it for you. But you got what you want. Just how my mind works. And then that got me thinking that if you're going to have an outdoor system, I remember earlier I talked about painting buckets. And I see a lot of people build um, systems out of ball jars. And they wrap the ball jars in foil to keep the light out. I'm sure that works. And all. By the way, you could spray paint a ball jar. I'm just saying. right? It would be so much easier than wrapping it in foil. But whatever. Um, in fact, Plasti Dip would probably be perfect for spraying your ball jars. Plasti Dip is something a lot of people like use on rims and stuff now. It sprays a coating that's kind of like a balloon onto a surface. It's, and it's pretty. it stays pretty well. But when you want it off, it just peels off. It's so like a can of Plasti Dip would probably paint like 30 freaking ball jars. I'll put a link to Plasti Dip in the show notes as well. Let me let me start making some notes here so I don't forget all the things I just committed to adding. And I'll try listening to that last little bit too to make sure I didn't miss anything in my notes. I just threw five things in the notes. So I'll try to add all this stuff to the notes. So you can, you know, if you don't buy it from Amazon, it's fine. See what see what it, I'm talking about. On the Plasti Dip, I think you will find if you go to Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, whatever, and you buy it at the store, you'll pay less for it because it's an aerosol and shipping goes up and it's stupid, right? So I, w I would buy that. But Plasti Dip, like I was saying, when you spray it, I use it for the back of an aquarium. I like to spray paint like the back of my aquarium black because that creates a sense of depth and it works with anything that you do. And then if you use like black airline tubing and stuff like that, it all disappears and lets you aquascape. So it looks really beautiful. And, you know, most filter sponges and all are black, so they kind of blend into that background and your plants kind of take over. So anyway, the reason I use it is, let's say a couple of years from now, I want to redo a tank. And it's kind of, it needs to be, the, the backing just kind of needs to be redone. It started to flake and all. Well, if that's paint, 
I kind of have to like scrape with scrapes and repaint it, and then it peels again real fast. With a plastic tip, I can just peel it off, literally, and it comes off, it feels like a balloon. So if you put it on a ball jar and you ever wanted to use that ball jar again, it just peels off like peeling a freaking you know, banana or something. So you could you know, do your, your ball jars with that. But when I started thinking about the pretty box, you know what a box is? When you put a box over something and the box really isn't structural, it's just there to make it look pretty, we call that a facade. And one of the things I've done with a facade to keep one of my tank systems cool is I built this facade... And I have three great big steel tanks behind it that are at the top of one of my circulating water systems. Well, the other two big tanks in that system, there's two 500-gallon tanks in that system, and these are three 170s. They're in the ground at least partially. And the one that's not all the way in the ground is in the shade almost all the time. So that system stays nice and cool, uh, at least in the, in the summer when the trees have full leaf and all that. Well, the top of that system, these are elevated so that we get gravity flow. They were going to get blasted with the sun about five hours a day. I'm like, that's just going to heat up. So I built this facade, and they stay cool. Well, if you built a system on five-gallon buckets or three-and-a-half-gallon buckets or anything like that, well, if you put a facade there, then you could just reach in and take buckets out, put buckets back in. Then they would stay nice and cool, but your plants would get plenty of sunlight. So I was just thinking, like, wherever I build, like, a significant hydro system, building a simple you know, two-by-four frame and then covering it with inexpensive siding and painting that siding, and you could make it look like anything you wanted then, would be a great way to create like a high-end look to a hydro system, and you would get now blocking sunlight with no extra work. So you could use your cheap five-gallon buckets or, I mean, if you're doing lettuces, you can do lettuces in, you know, I always talk about using things like the one-gallon, um, Arizona iced tea jugs or the one-gallon apple juice jugs to store water in. Well, whoever your source is for that, you got it for them. You got all your water stored up now. Get some more, and you can do um, hydroponics in them. Like, that's plenty big enough to grow a lettuce plant or a kale plant or something like that, or even some smaller framed, like, peppers and stuff like that, though I would stick to leaf crops for this. But think about, like, 20 used jugs in a row. They're ugly, it looks unsightly, you know, people complain, like spouses, and then you got to paint them all, and that's a pain in the ass, but if you built a nice little facade that looks like a planter box that was designed for all those jugs to sit in, the only money you would have in your system is the facade and the net cup, and your, you know, one-tenth you know, one of a cent of fertilizer to get to the gallon. So that was just some other stuff I want to bring up. That's kind of where my head was going. My final thoughts on this is there's a lot for me to learn about this shit. And I know sometimes I come across really passionate about things I know. And sometimes it can seem like when somebody makes a suggestion, I'm like beating up on them or something. I am never beating up on people uh, that don't deserve it. That's my caveat. There are people that are just, you're so stupid and you don't know anything. That person's getting eviscerated or deleted or both. But a lot of times I'll say, like, well, you can think that, but. And I don't mean like you're a dumbass. I just mean, like, I already did that. In this case, I haven't done much of this. Like, my experience is all in aquaponics, which, again, I think a lot of this stuff's going to translate just fine because what I'm doing is actually more complicated. Like, when you want to balance your system in a hydro system and you're like, no, my pH is off and I want it to be uh, one point lower, you just lower your pH. Nothing happens. 
Yeah, try that shit with fish that have adapted to the system they're in and see what happens. You have a lot of floating fish. Your system is deficient in boron or copper. Dump in some boron or copper. You're good. Doing that in a fish system, one, is expensive, two, there's a good chance you're going to kill your fish. So I think this will be really easy. But I also know that, like, no matter what you're doing and no matter how much you know, there are times where people that have already done it, they already did that thing you think is a good idea. So if I'm off track here, let me know. If you know ways to do things that I'm postulating, let me know. And the best thing I need from you guys is product recommendations. I don't mind buying five different things in the same product category and evaluate them if that's what I have to do. If that's what I have to do so I can say, this product has the Jack Spirico seal of approval. Or even, you know what, everything in this category kind of sucks, but this one sucks the least. If I have to do it that way, I'll do it that way. And I've already bought a bunch of shit to play with. But if one of you can go like, this is the cheapest and best thing in the world for media. And no one even uses it for media. I'm going to try that shit, and if it works, I'm going to run with it. So if you have recommendations, like I said, an EC meter, I found a bunch of EC meters that were also like, they did EC, TDC, PH, and TDS, right? If you don't know those initials, don't worry about it. And they had great reviews. And then I go to Fake Spot, and they get a D or an F. So I know they're cheating the system. Now, what I've learned with Fake Spot is it's not 100%, but when I have no idea... And then everybody's cheating. I really don't know where to go. So I will totally review an item and go, yeah, they got a D on fake spot, but it totally works, so get this. Right? Um, and I'll totally review an item that's got an A on fake spot and great reviews and go, but no, this sucks. I used it. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. These people don't understand what they're, whatever, you know. Um, but what I love the most is, Jack, I've been using this for two years. When I get a recommendation like that, guys, I usually buy that item. Sometimes you might not even hear back from me because I'll go like, it doesn't really work for me or I'm wrong with it, but it doesn't work for a T-Spass item. Or but I almost always, when somebody says, I've been using this for two years, man, and it works great, I eval that. Because I feel like I have this amazing access to collective intelligence. So you guys out there, I know there's a lot of you that do hydro. I know that some people get really passionate about. If you have specific product recommendations, specific technique recommendations, etc. But I will say this. If you're going to be like, look, man, you should just go with deep water systems with a pump and just skip right ahead. I understand that you're excited. I understand the advantages of those systems. My goal with this is to make it work for me, but much like small batch mead, small batch wine. Like I come from the school of thought with brewing. I started out doing five-gallon batches, uh, you know, pumping oxygen into things for high-level ferments before – That was a thing. Uh, I've been doing brewing forever. And when I discovered small batch making, my thought was, I can see all the advantages of small batch, and I can see all the advantages of large batch over small batch. But the big advantage I can see with small batch is I can teach somebody how to do this in a 45-minute podcast. And I know next week I'm going to be on Facebook and see pictures of somebody's freaking one-gallon treetop apple juice jug with their airlock chugging away, and they're excited and they're happy. I know that's going to happen. With Krat Key and maybe some little things like, let's pump a little air in there or something, let's throw an aquarium heater, I know that's going to happen. So you guys that are into the bigger systems, this is the best thing in the world if you're passionate about spreading your hobby. Because 
for every 20 people to get involved with this, for 10, it's going to stick and become something they do. About 50%. That's my guess. And out of those 10, you know, one is going to end up with like a hobby scale, almost commercial level system or go commercial with it. So if you want more people doing it, what you want is an entry point. And if that entry point is two liter soda bottles with crack key in a window, then that's what you want. So let's try to stick to how to make this work really, really good without getting complex right now. Because I'm going to tell you, you guys know me, and by spring, when I'm doing all this stuff with seed starting and all, I will probably have some system that's way more complicated set up. Even if I go, you know what, I did that, it works, here's how it works, I've documented it, now go do it if that's you, and now it's going to go away. Even if that happens, I'll do it. But right now, what I'm asking for help with is the simple methods. Simple methods. And I'm going to stay with, hey, I'm going to mix up these two, these two uh, containers, and I'm going to actually adjust the pH down, like they say to do, in one and not the other. Let's see how it works. I'm going to do a lot of testing. Um, so there might be something you should like, you really should put your pH down in that, and I might not do it. I probably did it somewhere else, right? And, and if that comes out to be like, dude, you need to do it, I'll be like, dude, you need to do it. It's just one more thing to add, so do it. But I also might be like, you know what, if you're growing lettuce, it doesn't give a shit. And that's my gut, that like peppers and tomatoes and bigger plants and a lot more long-term plants, buffering that pH is going to be a much bigger thing. But if I'm growing lettuce, I just bet you, the water out of my tap, as hard as it is, is going to grow lettuce just fine. And the reason I believe that is it grew lettuce just fine on my fish systems. So we shall see. But I want your input on this. If you listen to this episode and you're like, that jerk said he was going to put this one thing in the notes. And I went and I looked through all those notes and it's not there. Tell me in the comments or tell me in an email. Hey, Jack, you said, and I don't know where it is. And I'll make a recommendation for that. And I will even include a recommendation for a small aquarium heater that I would use in like a 3 to 10 gallon tub. I'll make sure I get that in. In fact, I'm going to pull up right now my little note card here. So I don't forget that for you, heater. But it is inevitable that when I do a show like this that I commit to items that I don't link to. So if I've done that to you this time, please let me know. One more item I do have linked in the resources before I wrap up today is an air pump. It was recommended by the listener that did the really long post that ended up in the spam. And he seems like he's been doing this for like two years and he really knows his shit. It's an air pump I thought about getting just to play with it. And I didn't because there were some good reviews and some bad reviews. And one of my problems with small air pumps and trying to do a large hydro system based on air pumps alone is I almost think the way you have to do it to be efficient, and I bet it's what commercial producers do, is you get like a shop size air compressor. You bleed off enough pressure, and you run PVC pipe, and then you plumb air stones off of those pipes where you can run regular plumbing valves and stuff like that to control your whole system. And then you come up with a constant pressure on the tool side, and that gives you the amount of air you want everywhere. And, you know, that air compressor will kick on four, five, six times a day and build its pressure back up way beyond its needs and... The reason I know that is commercially, when we do aquariums, that's what we do. If I want to run air pressure to, you know, 120-gallon longs, that's exactly how I do it. 
That's the easy, it's the most economical way to do it. But I don't think that's very economical to run a hobby scale hydro system. The alternative then is these small pumps that are the size of what, you know, I use for my 40 breeders and my 55s. And, you know, I'll have what, two, four, six, eight, ten tanks in front of me here. Um, but I know from experience that pumps that are really good pumps, and they say they can run four air stones, especially as you get into deeper water, they tend to reach their capacity of what they'll push air through pretty quickly. So I'm a little skeptical on how well this pump will work. But like I said, the guy's been doing it for two years. I'd like to hear back from you, dude, like how, like you said, it's got four valves on it. How many stones are you running off that pump? And how deep are those stones? And how far do those lines run? I'd like to know that. Um, and anybody that's doing air-driven pumps in their hydro, what are you using? And those same questions, let me know that. And I'm going to try to make this um, as accessible to people as, as possible. Because here's my big takeaway from hydro. Even if you stick to just Kratky, or just Kratky and maybe some air in some places, it is infinite, the combinations and the pieces and parts you take to yourself and what fits you best. And that's great, but what it means is there's so many different options. I don't want anybody to feel locked into anything. So hopefully you guys enjoyed the two-part series this week. And uh, if you did and you want to support this show, remember two ways to do that. One, become a member. But remember this week, don't. I have a sale coming for you next week on memberships, so hold off on that. The other is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Since today's show went long, I don't have a new item of the day for you today. I have the same one as yesterday, Ch Chomps, uh, uh, Black Pepper, Venison, Beef Sticks. Uh, these things are awesome. Just give them a try, and remember, if you shop through T-SPAZ, you help this survival podcast and the work that we do no matter what you buy. So that brings us to Song of the Day. And this is actually a song that's like an 80s pop song. And it has all the uh, the sound of kind of a formulaic 80s pop song. And it's from a, a guy that we recently lost. It was a really good dude, though, Eddie Money, who was kind of a formulaic pop singer from the 70s and the 80s, right? I mean, so it's what you'd expect. But I think it's a really underrated song on the message in it. The song's called I Want to Go Back, and it was released in 1986, so long ago that I was in high school. And um, it was a song that was actually pretty popular when I was in high school. And the thing is, we th we we were so stupid that we're like, hey, remember back in the day? And, and I, I ask kids now that are like in their late teens, like, when, when exactly, pray tell, was the day, right? Like yesterday, right? Um It was a song actually about the time that we were living in that we were so much in a hurry to get out of. Eddie Money said about that song that it took him back to like hanging out with friends and drinking beer after football games. And that one of the things he figured out was that um, the best way to date a cheerleader without playing on the football team was to be in a rock band. It's kind of funny that like one of the most successful guys in, in music from that era uh, got in a rock band just for chicks. And that, 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 that statement's probably true for, uh, more rather than less of the people that ever got into music. But I think that, uh, it's probably not the case for more rather than less of the people that were really successful. Most of the people that were really successful in music had such a passion for music, but maybe that was their entry ramp anyway. I don't know. Um, but here's what Eddie Money told, um, a person in an interview about this song. This is a quote. My experience in high school was drinking beer under the bleachers. The older kids would always get you beer that was cheap and on sale. 
You never had a can opener. That kind of dates. That's back when you needed a can opener to open the beer. It didn't have a pull tab on it. Um, and it was very, very warm. But I can remember in high school, the dances and being in love. I found out the best way to date a cheerleader without being on a football team was to be in a rock band. But my favorite verse on that song is, I recall hanging out on Friday night, the first slow dance, hoping that I'll get it right. That just epitomizes a great song. Indeed. But what makes this song even, because everybody has heard songs about like wanting to be able to go back to those days as a kid that you never really appreciated fully while you were living them. But as you get older and you start thinking about a desire, like I wish I could go back, there's times when you'll sit and you'll really think about it. And you do realize that what the song says is true. You can't. You know you can't. Part of you wants to, but you know it's impossible. We don't have the technology to go back in time, especially to reverse aging, right? Um, I'm going to tell you that there are some things that you'll find that you regret. And those regrets will turn into two things, things you did, things you didn't do. And the ones you regret that you did are the irreversible mistakes, something that maybe got you hurt, Like you broke a bone and it's, it's it like something you still deal with, right? Um, or some mistake you made that financially just destroyed you or something like that. Those are the things you did that you'll, for instance, regret or really hurting someone else, which will also lead to one of the things that, you know, you, you learn to regret about not doing. Cause that's, that's actually the things that, you know, when you regret something you did, but you did it. And you got the consequence and you dealt with it. And that's one thing to live with. But the other thing, the thing that you'll think about more is the things you didn't do. Yes, there is a butthole, so, butthole surfer song that starts out with a dad talking to his kid that says exactly that, right? I know if that's where you're thinking. Let's stick to this, though, right? Because I know I'm going to hear it. That's from butthole surfer. Yes, it is better to regret the things that you did rather than things you didn't do. But what you'll find that you regret that you didn't do will be taking risks, You actually think back to high school and go, I should have asked that girl out. Not because you think today we'd be married, but because I never knew what would have come of it. And you realize, looking back now, but even if she'd laughed in my face, it would have been better that I did it than I didn't. You'll regret not asking for a promotion, not asking for a raise, and think, man, if I was back at that point now. You'll regret not taking initiative in something. You'll regret not taking a vacation. You'll regret not going fishing more. You'll regret not spending more time with your kids. The further you get toward the end of your dash, the more you'll regret the things you didn't do. And another thing you'll regret is when you didn't do more to help someone in pain. On a very serious note, there's a school shooting today. And what I know now is one person's dead plus the shooter who shot himself, shot five people, was shot with a handgun. Uh, you did all the shooting was done with a handgun. That's what I know. Here's what I think I know. We're going to find out this kid was bullied. We're going to find out this kid was on some sort of medication. And the press will run with this for about a week at most because it's not an assault rifle. Right? It's sad that I can already extrapolate that. But if this kid was bullied, and I think we're going to find that there is, would one person having been his friend made this not happen? And I think back to, like, 
I'd like to think that I did the best I could in high school to like stick up for kids that were being picked on, you know, outside of the regular friendship thing where you just tear each other apart because you love each other. Um, but I can think of a couple times where like someone said something and, you know, I can think of this one girl, her name was Tina. I don't remember her last name, but I remember some, somebody saying something. One I just remember seeing her face so hurt. And if I, if I ever meet her again in some way, shape, or form, I'll apologize for that day for not saying, hey, jackass. Apologize before I turn you upside down and beat your head on the ground. And the guy that did it, I could have done that. And I'll tell you this. You might think, well, you know, Tina would be like, I don't even remember that. No, I saw her face. Wherever that girl is today, she remembers that. And I regret that she doesn't remember that somebody stood up for her. I regret that. And those of you that are younger that listen to the show, I know there's kids that listen to the show that are in your teens. Number one, don't be in such a hurry to get out of where you are. Number two, don't think you have it rougher than we did when we were teens and we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, the, the, the colloquialism that's going around now, people throw it at me, even though I'm not a boomer. It's okay, boomer. You know, when you say that, young folks, here's what you're saying. The person who lived through all your shit, plus 30 years or 40 years or 50 years of the shit that's yet in front of you, you know more than. Let me tell you something. You don't. Times are different. Yeah, you have a lot of shit available to you that they and I didn't. Right? So listen to advice of those who have already walked the path that you're on. And I'm going to tell you, and I guarantee you, plenty of those will tell you. The one reason you'd want to go back is not just to relive the good. And appreciate it better than you did at the time. It would be to right some wrongs. And one of those wrongs would be saying harsh things to people that you shouldn't have. And another would have been standing up for people that you should have stood up for. And another one will be having been kind to people who didn't have anybody to be kind to them. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.